funniest player on the team for me is Belly, and it's the way he delivers them for real. It's like when he delivers his jokes, there's no laugh, and you really can't even tell if he's serious or not. We deserve this win, man. Fox Sports 5 flying high in Motown. Oh, my goodness. I'm feeling great, man. I'm feeling the best I've ever felt. I'm excited. I'm, I'm all about winning. I know that the fans here are extremely loyal and passionate. And just like them, I, I want to become not just a playoff team, but a sustained playoff team and eventually get back to some of that championship success and contention. With the 12th pick in the 2020 NBA Draft, the Sacramento Kings select Tyrese Halliburton. Imagine being one of those players that's on a team that you know hasn't been in the playoffs in over a decade, almost two decades, about a decade and a half, and then being the first team to actually get to the playoffs. Just being able to be a part of that would definitely be something special. And if we can, you know, end up building a championship contending team, you're winning a championship in Sacramento. Like that's that's looked at a lot differently. You probably feel better than you do with anything else. Welcome back to another episode of the King's Pulse podcast presented by the King's Herald. My name is Brendan Nunez. Got Jacob Niffin on here today, co-host of the uncontested Oklahoma City Thunder focused Blue Wire podcast. Um, Thanks for joining me, Jacob. Been on the show before, but thanks for taking the time again, man. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for having me on. I think the last time we did this, we went super in-depth with a Thunder Kings trade idea uh, that never even seems to have uh, sniffed the surface. So hopefully the content of this one will be a little more relevant. You're so, uh, you're funny. Yeah, I forgot it was. I think it was that 34, 36 for Bagley, right? Was uh, what we really were brainstorming. Yeah. Um, and I guess I'll ask you real quick. Um, how do you feel about the draft? We did a bunch of draft coverage here too. I think we talked about it on that pod as well. Uh, Gideon Mann are the two main takeaways, right? How'd you feel about that one? For sure. Yeah, it's... <sighs> I mean, so I, I I think you and I talked before the draft lottery, if I'm correct. Uh, the Thunder had a 75% chance to land at least one pick in the top five. I think a 20% chance to land two picks in the top five uh, in the draft lottery. They end up with pick number six. Uh, so that was disappointing. Uh, word around was that I, I don't believe the rumors that Shea Gilgis Alexander was ever actually offered up in trades. Um, but it seems like the Thunder were pretty aggressive trying to trade up into that top four. It never, never came to fruition. Uh, so they took Giddy at six and he played a total of five minutes in summer league. Meanwhile, you guys over in Sacramento got to watch your first round draft pick play in like three different summer leagues and won a summer league title. Meanwhile, over here in Oklahoma City, we got a total of five minutes of Josh Gideon Summer League action. So there's a lot left to be seen. I I think Thunder fans would have been, uh, I don't know what the right word is, maybe a lot more relaxed had they got to see Josh Gideon play in Summer League. But since that didn't happen, there's still a lot of like hand-wringing about it. I'm actually pretty excited about the pick. It seems to fit this new mold that the Thunder are targeting in the draft. Uh, guys that are very high IQ, uh, not maybe not the most athletic, but but very skill based. We saw that them do that with Alexei Pokashevsky last year. Uh, now Josh Giddy this year. So I'm I'm excited to see Josh once we get to preseason and actually see him on an NBA court. One of the youngest kids in the draft as well. He won't be 19 until October. So I, I'm excited to see what he looks like. And personally, I'm just stoked to see him and Alexei Pokashevsky too. Yes. 
uh, a seven footer and a six foot nine guy. I think Josh measures at six foot nine, just throwing ridiculous behind the back passes while Shea Gilgis Alexander shoots step back threes. I know the team won't be good, but I think there's a lot of building blocks there to get excited about. Absolutely. Sounds like so much fun. I loved Giddy uh, at the time of the draft. Yeah, I think he was my favorite guy to watch film on. Um, and, and yeah, I think my favorite stat was that he was the youngest guy that was uh, going to be a first rounder or likely selected in the lottery. And then Primo just came yeah. out of absolutely nowhere and took that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I'm super intrigued by the core OKC has a bunch of guys that I really am personally high on. Um, but the comp that we're running with today, you mentioned Davion a little bit and how shocking that pick was for Sacramento fans. Um, I think they're still actually they're not still getting over it. I, I think the whole summer league situation definitely helped fans cope and understand and be excited about Davion. But now they're sitting here with this three guard lineup. Um, De'Aaron Fox, six, three Tyrese Halliburton, six, five Davion Mitchell, six foot, six, one, um, seeing a little bit of both depending in and out of shoes. Um, but, you know, I think the most common three guard lineup that I think I felt comfortable comparing it to, and also just the most obvious recent one is OKC, um, not last season, the year before with Chris Paul, Dennis Schroeder, Shea Gilgis, Alexander. And I actually think um, just when it comes to physical builds, because OKC's lineup is undoubtedly more talented, but I think physical build wise, there's interesting comparisons. Like I think Davion Mitchell and Chris Paul are pretty similar when it comes to this like shorter, stronger guard. Um, Dennis Schroeder and De'Aaron Fox are slender, faster players. Um, and then SGA and Tyrese Halliburton both are more lengthy and on the slim side as well. So I think when you're talking the builds that I, I think there could be some comparisons to these three guards um, and how they mesh on the defensive end of the floor. Um, but when, you know, when this three guard lineup was first getting rolled out for OKC, was it something that, um, you felt comfortable with it first. Um, were there were there growing pains with those guys getting used to each other? And were there any prior three guard lineups that you felt like you could point at the way that I am right now as um, something to base off of? Yeah, so I don't know if there's any prior three guard lineups that that we really had to um, the ability to look back at and and maybe draw conclusions. And in the preseason of of the year, the the Chris Paul Dennis Schroeder. Shea Gilgis-Alexander year, the Thunder coaching staff was talking about running those three guys together. And the consensus as far as like Thunder media, Thunder podcasting, uh, Thunder Twitter, et cetera, was just how the hell are they going to make that work? You have three three guards, like two guys that are that are pretty undersized that can really only guard one, maybe guard guard up to the two as well, and just how they would survive. And and I mean, whenever Billy Donovan had floated that idea multiple times in press availability in the preseason, my thought was just like, that's a bad plan. In an NBA that is geared towards wing size, you know, having a six, seven, six, eight, six, nine guy out on the wing, uh, the Thunder want to run three guards. And, and it just, it never made any sense to me preseason. But then once it actually got out on the court, that, that three-man lineup, actually, uh, I think one of the highest plus-minus lineups of three-man lineups in the league that season. I have and the best net rating of any lineup over 100 minutes together. 29.9 net rating. What yeah. the... And then also, I, I, don't, I, I didn't look this up before we hopped on here, but uh, I can tell you undoubtedly that the clutch 
numbers of those three guys uh, and th- that lineup. Uh, I think that the, the most common closing lineup for the Thunder were those three guards, Danilo Gallinari, Steven Adams, and the clutch numbers were just absolutely astronomical. Like it, it was far and beyond number one in the league. Uh, nobody else was even close uh, compared, comparing to that three guard lineup whenever the game was on the line. And Brendan, to be honest with you, I think a lot of that stemmed from Chris Paul and the leadership of Chris Paul. Into uh, the show with you, I was actually thinking about what you had just mentioned, the, the size comparisons of that Thunder three-guard lineup from a few years ago and this Kings three-guard lineup now. There are a lot of similarities, and I think the biggest thing for the Thunder with that lineup and, and what a lot of people were worried about was defensively. But Shea Gilgis-Alexander having the length to guard threes um, and then Chris Paul just having the strength to be able to switch and really guard anybody uh, I, I think was a massive, massive part of that three guard lineup being so successful. And you've already seen it in, in some of his college tape, like guarding Cade Cunningham. Uh, you saw it in the, the summer league, but Davion Mitchell definitely has that ability. He's not the tallest dude in the world, but he's just, he's built like a Mack truck. He doesn't get pushed around. He battles and fights and pushes and claws on every possession You can post him up, but it's kind of like a Chris Paul post up. Like whoever posts Chris Paul up typically doesn't end well for you. It's not a good possession. I feel like Davion Davion Mitchell is going to be the same way. Uh, And and so those defensive uh, matchups, I think, will actually fare out pretty well for the Kings. I hope you're right. Um, <laughs> the Cade stuff. So like he, he had, I think the most impressive stuff about that is that just, he's the primary assignment for Cade, Right. But I think there also are like moments throughout that game where you see him just getting overpowered, understandably. So, and I think that, you know, like in NBA spacing, it, there were a lot of moments where it wasn't just Davion guarding Cade, understandably with Oklahoma city's roster or Oklahoma uh, state's roster, you know? So I, I still have my, skepticisms there a little bit when it comes to guarding up and and yeah i mean that's the main question right the first question and when it comes to fit i think most has to do with the defensive end and we'll talk how they meshed on offense as well but the obvious is just yeah who's going to guard the wing um the biggest player out of these three um and you're saying the answer for okc was sga right but they switched a lot between themselves yeah definitely and like i mentioned the the most common like five man lineup with those three guards was throwing in Danilo Gallinari and Steven Adams in that lineup as well. Uh, Gallo and Adams, two guys that are pretty like defined defensively in their roles. Uh, You don't want Gallo switching out and guarding a point guard. You don't want Steven Adams guarding on the wing, right? You, You want those guys kind of staying close to the basket, kind of in their niche. And so there was a lot of switching of the three guards Uh, and a little bit less with the two bigs in that lineup. And that's where I think maybe Sacramento has uh, a bit of an advantage there. If, if that five man lineup is those three guards, like plus Harrison Barnes, um, plus Rashawn Holmes, Rashawn Holmes. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of switchability there where you can almost switch one through five and just do a lot of scrambling. Now the thunder did a lot of switching, but on the backside of those plays, the, the scramble to get rematched yeah. up 
was very, very frequent. So if, if the ball was isolated on the left-hand side, uh, there was a, the team was running a pick and whoever the Thunder were playing was running a pick and roll on that side. Uh, then there was some rotations on the other side to get Steven Adams back down uh, on the help side defense and then pop Shea Gilgis-Alexander back on the, on the weak side def- defender. And so there was like a lot of off-ball switching to make sure the matchups didn't get too crazy, which required a ton of communication and really being a defense on a string and, and working as a five-man unit. But once they figured that out, the defense was able to hold up obviously offensively, and, and we can talk about the Kings three-guard lineup offensively as well, but offensively, that, that, that Thunder lineup was killer. Uh, and defense, they, they did enough to survive, and I think a lot of that was predicated off switching, especially off-ball backside switching to get guys in the right position to be able to help. Uh, there was a lot of like digging down and doubling whenever team, bigger teams would inevitably try to take advantage of being posted up on, on a Dennis Schroeder or on a Shea Gilgis Alexander, uh, the, the communication I think was incredibly key to kind of unlocking the defensive potential of that three guard lineup. Yeah. And I think that that's going to be the big question mark for Sacramento. Obviously, you know, so much of their issues last year, like worst team in the league, worst defensive record of all time, right. Or defensive rating of all time last year. And it just didn't feel like they should have been that bad. They shouldn't have been like head and shoulders, the worst defense. And a lot of it felt like guys just kind of throwing in the towel um, because everybody else around them was doing too, doing it as well, um, which is just, yeah, contagious in the wrong way. And the idea is that this offseason, they're definitely focused on culture. And you saw the summer league squad be really focused on the defensive end. And um, I think the idea is that Davion in a, Chris Paul-esque way, which obviously is a ginormous ask and unfair on a rookie, but it almost seems like he's the defensive culture setter and Mm -hmm. the guy that's supposed to be holding people accountable in a somewhat similar way. Um, But before we move to like the impressive offensive versatility, the other thing I was curious to hear from you here is, uh, you know, this team had, you mentioned Gallo and Steven Adams, and I, I should have said earlier that net rating, that 29 is that lineup you were talking about, the three guards with um, Adams and Gallinari in there as well. Um, but the team had two really good rim protectors, Steven Adams and Nerlens Noel. Um, and I really like Rashawn Holmes. Uh, I think that he's better switching than protecting the rim though. Um, and I was just curious if you felt like, you know, with all the uh, ball pressure and smaller perimeter guards, that it was important to have an anchor down low like that, because I feel like Sacramento is, is lacking that. Yeah, for sure. And so Steven Adams, as far as like a rim protector, I think when people hear the word rim protector or the words rim protector, they think blocking shots at the rim. And Steven Adams, like as far as his Thunder career went, never averaged like a ton of blocks, was never rotating over and erasing shots. Uh, Actually, he talked a lot about his mindset defensively is that if you have to like get up to block the shot, that means you didn't play the the possession out well defensively. And so he was more of a cutoff driving lanes, um, force people away from the basket, make them take a, a little bit more of a difficult shot rather than trying to use your athleticism to block shots, which was kind of the opposite of Nerland's Noel, which was an interesting dynamic. But I think that was massive for the Thunder as well, was that Adams wasn't rotating over and just erasing shots every other play but he was rotating over to cut off a driving lane, uh, rotating over and then recovering back to body up a big to make sure that they uh, 
you know, don't back down Dennis Schroeder uh, into the bucket. And so a lot of that is like this cerebral uh, defensive mindset where you are trying to play out the possession as intelligently as possible instead of as athletically as possible, if that makes sense. Now, when Nerlens Noel was on the floor, that was a little bit of a different story. They relied a lot on funneling the ball down to Nerlens um, so he could get up and block shots because he averaged uh, a lot of block shots that year and erased a lot of possessions for other teams. Whereas for Steven Adams, it, it was more of a methodical style of defense rather than I'm just going to over- overwhelm you with the athleticism. So in that instance, like Rashawn Holmes doesn't block a lot of shots. I think that's fine as long as you have that mindset on the back side of the defensive play, uh, your backline defense of seeing where the ball is swinging, being able to rotate in space, tag guys and get back out, um, sink back down into the paint, hands up. Don't Half the time, like Adams wouldn't even jump to try to block shots, just uses his barrel chest and gets his arms up uh, to, to make the shot more difficult. And so, I think a lot of that was really part of that success as well, um, which, which was which was interesting because, like you mentioned, I think the the conventional wisdom is you have a lot of guards pressuring the ball like crazy on the perimeter, which allows the offensive player if they get by you like a beeline to the rim, and then you just hope that your big man comes over and erases it, and that's not really how that Thunder defense operated. Yeah, makes sense. And I think that uh, the Kings are going to have to get creative with that as well. And then the one aspect that I think is really just going to be unavoidable when it comes to this lineup, Kings were the worst rebounding team in the league last year. OKC struggled with that with a much better rebounding big. I know Adams doesn't get like crazy rebounding numbers, but he's the typical like box out and let the other guys grab it. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that's an area that I'm not even sure how you solve it. You know, there's gang rebounding. Like I think you're kind of going to limit a little bit of your transition opportunities off live rebounds because some of these guards are going to need to be helping um, secure boards more so than leaking out. Um, But yeah, that OKC team, worst offensive rebounding team in the league um, during that season. And the Kings were the worst rebounding team in the league last year. And I would say Holmes to Steven Adams is a pretty decent downgrade when you're talking rebounding as well. So Um, and and I don't really see a way to avoid that with this lineup. You know, I mean, you're going to have your positives that we'll get to on the offensive end here, but that's just going to be one of the downsides here. Right. Yeah, definitely. You know, and that was kind of a, a weird thing for the thunder because previous to that season, they were always like top two or three in offensive rebounding in the league. Um, I specifically remember like the, the season where the thunders front court rotation, or center rotation with Steven Adams and his cancer. And those two just ate re- breakfast. Uh, so many second chance points. And yeah, that, that three guard lineup really mitigated a lot of that. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head. It limits your transition opportunities because you have to have those guards dig down and try to rebound. Obviously, Davion Mitchell, not the biggest dude in the world, but he's tough. He can get in there and scrap. Uh, you have Tyrese Halliburton with to hopefully get down there, dig in get some rebounds, but yeah, it it becomes definitely a five man game. You're not going to, you're not going to eat offensive rebounds and you have to ensure that you don't get annihilated on the defensive glass. That's like, that was one of the biggest things was for the thunder. They were able to play small and then not give up a ton of second chance points. And 
playing small can work out offensively, but if you're just hemorrhaging points because you can't close out a defensive possession, uh, it's like negligible, right? It, it, it defeats the entire purpose. And so, yeah, you you probably see less leak outs, less fast break because those guys are going to have to all commit to getting in there, dirtying it up and, and trying to come away with a defensive defensive rebound to close out a possession. Yeah. Harrison Barnes isn't, isn't a great rebounder, but maybe you hope you can make up for it. You know, Tristan Thompson, Alex Len, Marvin Bagley, all decent rebounders for their size, if not above average rebounders. Um, so hopefully you can survive there, but I think it's definitely going to be a weakness and it was last year as well anyways. Um, but the offensive end of this floor, I mean, obviously versatility, right. From all three of these guys that can create for themselves and others. Um, and you mentioned the clutch numbers that were ridiculous for this lineup. Um, and also just their normal shooting numbers were crazy. 67% true shooting for that lineup. They finished 75% of their attempts at the rim, shot 42% on threes when those three guards were out there. Um, I, I mean, did some of it feel like, man, these guys are just hitting a crazy amount of shots? Definitely. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. It definitely felt that way. But what, what was interesting about those lineups, especially in the clutch, was that their passing numbers were good. But their assist numbers were like bottom third. I noticed this, yeah, in the league. And so I think conventionally thinking about this, you would think, oh, you have these three guards. Um, you are getting a ton of like driving kicks and and swinging the ball and just beating the defense. Um, you know, ball speed beats foot speed uh, and getting open shots. But really, what the Thunder offense was predicated on at that time with those three guards was. Lots of screens, lots of driving, forcing switches, and then just finding the mismatch, getting the ball to whichever guard had the mismatch, and letting them eat. Uh, a lot of times, it would be a a guy like like a big man guarding Dennis Schroeder, and it almost and inevitably almost always ended with a, a Schroeder scoop at the rim, or it ended with a slower footed guy on Chris Paul who does that little hesitation and gets to the free throw line and gets to the pull up or it ends with uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander um, catching the ball and, and, you know, having the chance to dribble pass or shoot and just blowing past guys off the dribble and using his unorthodox finishing at the rim to, to finish. So the assist numbers were low because they played a lot in isolation, but it was really intelligent isolation where they ran offensive possessions they, they worked the defense with these speedy guards to force mismatches, force switches, identify where the weak link is, and just attack it over and over and over again. I can't tell you how many times that I watched this team in, in clutch situations where there's nine seconds left on the shot clock, and they have now got the ball to either Chris, Dennis, or Shea at the top of the key. And then everybody else just clears out to the baseline and they go one-on-one and just cook somebody. And I mean, De'Aaron Fox, like the fastest dude in the league. If you are able to move the ball like that and get him into an isolation situation, like that's money, right? Like that, that is what you want at the NBA level. If you're able to get Tyrese Halliburton, um, you know, open for like a catch and shoot three or a place where he can attack off of a closeout. You're looking really good. And so that's that's how the Thunder survived. They, they moved the ball well, but the assist numbers weren't great because they wanted to find mismatches and they wanted to isolate. And that was the offensive game plan. 
now, obviously, they did have instances where driving kicks to, to an open Gallinari coming off a pin down uh, or him floating up from the corner up to the elbow as, uh, as Shea drives and kicks out uh, to get Gallo an open three or alley-oops on the backside to Steven Adams. But a lot of it was just those three guards being intelligent enough to identify the mismatch, get the ball where it needed to get to get to, and then just get the hell out of the way and let one of those three guys work. That was my assumption when I saw those assist numbers. Um, and I think Fox, great in isolation. Okay, so if you put these six guards, CP3, Schroeder, SGA, Fox, Halliburton, Mitchell, and you're ranking them in regards to the best to worst isolation player. Like those three OKC guards are three of the top four aside from Fox, you know, like I think Halliburton and Mitchell are a decent step down from Schroeder is probably the worst of those three. Right. Um, For the thunder. Yeah. Yeah. Especially after last season, Shea Gilgis Alexander became an right. isolation God last season. And I just think that like, I, I don't know if I feel great about, you know, Halliburton in an isolation situation. Like I think he's been a guy that I've described it a lot as um, putting him in a situation where he kind of already has an advantage rather than, and I guess that is a situation in an advantage, but it's not a, you know, numbers advantage where a guy's out of place. It's more of, you know, he still needs to, to shake him and break him down off the dribble. I, I feel a little, hesitant about that. And, and, and then Davion is shown flashes of that, but he is still a rookie. Um, so, I mean, point being like the OKC offense was ridiculous because of these three guys and their versatility and Sacramento's offense was really good last year. And I think they have reason to think that they are going to be very good again this year. Um, but I just don't know that like inserting Davion is really upping your offense. I think they're doing it for a more defensive focused, which is where, I have my questions a little bit here when it comes to this three-guard lineup. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. And, and, and another thing that that Thunder lineup really thrived on was mid-range pull-ups, which in the modern NBA is you know the big no-no shot. You, you don't take mid-range pull-ups. You take threes or you get to the rim. But Shea, Chris, and Dennis all love to operate in that mid-range, get those those isolations or get the defense rotating and attack a closeout instead of getting all the way to the rim uh, that, you know, they would get to that soft spot about 12 feet away from the basket, about free throw line extended and, and just hit those little pull up mid range J's. And, and that was a big time go-to for them that those three guys were uniquely like situated to make those shots because they take those shots so much, you know, obviously Chris Paul is like the mid range God. And so they lived a lot at that mid range, which, you know, some players aren't as comfortable with that shot, especially taking that shot, like off the dribble. Typically when you see guys attack a closeout, they're getting all the way to the rim or at least trying to get all the way to the rim where the, those three, three guards for the thunder wasn't necessarily always the case. It, it was get past that, that closeout. And before you get to the big hit the pull up. And so there's, there's those, interesting intricacies within what that offense looked like. And, you know, like you mentioned, the, the, the isolation play of Davion Mitchell and um, of Tyrese Halliburton aren't no offense to those guys, but they're not at the level of, of Dennis Schroeder and Shea Gilgis Alexander. Now you hope that, that they can start to develop that. 
Um, and, and it might be more that that offense with those three guards looks a lot more driving kick, driving kick, driving kick. Yeah. And I think until that's you more get Luke Swarton. Yeah. I think that's more Luke's offense anyways. Swing yeah, the ball so, left and right. So you, you might see a lot more of that compared to what that thunder lineup looked like, but yeah, I, I think, and, and we touched on a little bit earlier, but some of it was just those guys getting very hot. And I think being very comfortable and just making a crap ton of shots. I mean, I remember that that season, the Thunder played Chicago here in OKC and the Bulls had a pretty significant lead. And uh, that, that was Tibbs Bulls back then, by the way. And uh, I mean, the Thunder just in that fourth quarter ran that three guard lineup and just isolated Chris Paul almost every possession. And for some reason, the Bulls kept wanting to switch at the top of the screen and would get like a Wendell Carter Jr. isolated on Chris Paul. 25 feet away from the basket every time. And I mean, I just, I just watched the point God cook over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and, and so, like I said, they, they thrived in that isolation mindset. Whereas that Kings offense with those three guards may look a little bit different to try to fit the, the strengths of those guards. Um, and that'll be interesting to see because I think the strengths of the three Kings guards versus what the three guards at the thunder had a little bit different there. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, I think they'll they'll work it out fine on the offensive end, um, and you know a big plus of this as well. Like we're talking nonstop about all these guys playing together. A big plus of having the three on your roster is you at very least get one of these guys on your floor at all times. Um, exactly, which is is understated. You know, um, I, I still yeah, Davion wouldn't have been my guy because of these complications, but is what it is in this situation now. And the other aspect I want to ask you a uh, final question before I get you out of here, Jacob. And thanks again, man, is uh, the other surrounding guys. You know, we, we talked about Gallo and Adams, um, Nerland's a little bit, but did you feel like there was um, like key, key production from, you know, Dort Ferguson? Like I, I felt like there was a handful of other players on that roster that were somewhat defensive focused and the offensive um, responsibility could go to these three guards. And it kind of feels opposite of that for Sacramento. You know, they have some of their big man, big men that are more defensive focused, but they have a lot more offensive um, variety of guards, like a Buddy Heald, Terrence Davis, um, still on this roster. So I just wanted to ask you, did it feel like having these defensive role players was crucial for OKC that year? Definitely, you know, and that, that season was Lou Dort's rookie year. Uh, his coming out party. And there were times, so I mentioned at the start of the show that I thought the three guard lineup, whenever it was proposed in preseason was just insane. And towards the end of the season, I was saying, dude, F it, throw out a four guard lineup and run Dort at the four and then put Gallo at the five. Like, I don't care anymore. Like make it crazy versatile because Dort, I mean, that, that dude can, legitimately guard one through four on almost any team in the NBA. You know, he, you obviously don't want to throw him out there against like Anthony Davis, but I mean, he's routinely guarded LeBron James the past two years and nobody does a good job on LeBron, but I mean, Dort is like incredibly pesky and, and just gets after. It. And so I think having those types of guys, Ferguson really fell off that season, but having those defensive minded guys who knew like for Dort that season, he knew my job is to go out there, bust my ass on defense, and then spot up. And if I catch a catch a pass at the three point line, I'm o- and I'm open, fire it. 
And if I'm not, swing it back to one of Shea, Dennis, or Chris. Uh, same thing with Nerlens Noel. He knew his job was get out there, be incredibly aggressive defensively, try to block everything that comes down the paint. And then offensively, just wait for the lob and jump up and dunk it, set some screens. Besides that, just get out of the way. And so they were very uniquely positioned in that way, I think. Um, and they had a lot of versatility. So like if they needed to throw out uh, another spacing threat, obviously they had Danilo Gallinari. They ran uh, Abdul Nader a lot that season uh, who really helped with their spacing. That, that dude would shoot the ball anytime he caught it. And even though you know his percentages weren't insane, just his willingness to fire up those shots would draw out the defense. And so uh, they had a ton of versatility that they could fit in around those three guards that I think really helped them adapt to any situation they needed to. Um, and, and like you mentioned, like a, a buddy healed, like, I don't think you want to run four guards with the three we've been talking plus buddy plus throw out whichever big you want, but for stretches of a game, right? Like a, a random January game against, you know, I don't know the, the Detroit thunder. Pistons or the thunder. <laughs> yeah. The thunder, you know, like I, I don't see that being a bad plan either, because if you can get just five minutes of intense scrappy defense where you're switching everything you're up in everybody's grill. I think one of the underrated things about that thunder defense with those three guards was Dennis Schroeder would pick up full court every single possession. And so whenever you're running that three guard lineup, you don't want to give the offense a ton of time to be able to really isolate one of those guards and, and pick on them. Well, when Schroeder's picking up somebody full court, the offense wasn't getting into a set until there was 16, 15, 14 seconds left on the shot clock versus 18 or 19 seconds left on the shot clock. And, and those five to six seconds would make a huge difference uh, because that offense had to speed up and it allowed those guards to be more aggressive, knowing that the offense didn't have as long of a time to set up and really try to attack a mismatch. And so I, I think there's a lot of small intricacies, again, that, that kind of went into it. But that, that versatility that they had, that Thunder had that season, uh, I, I think definitely played, played a very big role, especially having certain defensive players come off the bench that could really complement those three guards. Absolutely. And, yeah, that is Sacramento's positional logjam they're currently in, but we've seen teams definitely make it work with, I feel like, this OKC, 18-19 OKC team being the best example of that 49 and 33 uh, sixth in the West that year. Again, I think the OKC team is a lot more talented at the top than Sacramento's roster. Um, Sacramento might have some more depth there, but it'll be interesting. We're inevitably going to see this three guard lineup of Fox, Halliburton and Mitchell. And uh, you know, I'm sure some of the pros and cons we went through today will come to light as uh, we're about two months away, I believe from the NBA season. Yeah, two months from, I think, actual, a little less than two months from actual games, about, what, a month and a half, a little less from preseason. So we're we're closing in pretty quick. Yeah, it happens quick for sure. And, uh, I, you know, all the great work that you and the other guys at the Uncontested are doing is something that people should be checking out. I know there's a lot of Poku fans from the last draft cycle. Um, I, I know there's a handful of giddy ones as well. I know a couple Kings people who were really big on Trey Mann as well. 
I love the Thunder, um, and I think young development basketball is something that Kings fans uh, definitely should have an acquired taste for. So definitely check out the great work that Jacob Niffin is doing, and that's the at on Twitter as well. Again, the Uncontested podcast, part of Blue Wire. Uh, anything else I'm missing here, Jacob? No, I think you got it, man. Thank you so much for letting me hop on once more. I, I hope this time I don't. Uh, jinx it by talking about something that never comes to fruition for the Kings. Uh, so now, we will now see. Now I want to pick something. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but I think I think that three guard lineup for the Kings is going to be a blast. I can't wait to watch that. Um, and I think Kings Thunder matchups are going to be uh, be pretty fun this this season. So I, I'm excited. Absolutely, I'm sure we'll end up uh, on some sort of arguments between the fan base about SGA or Fox. So. Oh, of course. Of course. Inevitable. Yeah. Well, again, Jacob Niffin, thanks for coming on, man. And and thanks to everybody for listening to this episode of the King's Pulse podcast. Definitely take a look at the King's Herald to support local independent King's coverage. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review. Hear from us again in the next couple of days.